for about a year, we've discussed the movements of our lives, whether they include the various experiences that we have had as individuals or those that we have experienced together in the newness of this community. We've been looking at the movements of the good and the bad and the better, and we've been looking through Isaiah with people in exile. Together, as a group, we've celebrated victories, great and small, passing the class, getting into the program, sending leaders to Young Life Camp or onto mission fields. Some of you have finally gotten a date. Some of you have finally gotten two dates. Some of you have finally gotten two dates with the same person. Some of us have had kids. Some of us have made new friends. Some of us have realized that the Eastern Shore is where we want to grow old, or at least where we want to stay until God calls us elsewhere. We have baptized people. We have felt the excitement of new lives that are committed to Christ. We have seen kids sing and dance on stage. And we've seen one of them who was a little bit disinterested with singing and dancing and deciding to play the drums instead like his dad. Together, we've dreamed about ministry on the campus of SU and local high schools. We've dreamed about ministry in our community. We've planned worship nights, we've brainstormed t-shirt designs and logos and websites. We've prayed for people to meet Jesus or come back to Jesus. On a personal level, we have probably spent time over the past year and a half thinking about how we fit into God's plan, how we can serve, who we are as individuals. In all of our discussions, we have tried to be honest. We say this often here. We believe firmly and resolutely that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is restoring humanity and relationships and all of creation to what they were intended to be. We believe that the gospel is actually doing something in our lives. We believe that it is changing us. We believe that this is evidenced, hopefully, in our actions and our words and our deeds. We believe that the gospel and its power are present in this place. But that doesn't mean that our lives are free of moments of lament, moments of anger, moments of sadness, moments of confusion. Bible scholars call this tension between the good and the bad the already not yet. At times, its effects are utterly profound. In one sense, Jesus has already won. He has already procured salvation for his people. He has already given us access to God. He has already reconciled us and transformed our hearts. More than that, he has already redeemed all of creation. But in another sense, his work is not yet finished. We still experience loss. We still experience brokenness. We still experience pain. Some of this is self-inflicted, some of it is circumstantial, and some of it is thrust upon us. And as a result, we plead for healing, we advocate for justice, we hope for what's next because this work of restoration is not quite done. With creation, as Paul would say, we groan, we wait, we anticipate the end, the final victory. Throughout our study of Isaiah, which took us through 25 weeks of what at times appeared to be very, very dry and difficult material, this tension of the already not yet was on full display each week. 
For many of us, we sympathized with Israel's pain. This was a people in exile, a people who had been removed from the land even though God had promised it to them. Because of their sin and recalcitrance, they went their own way despite many warnings. They eventually suffered the consequences. In Isaiah 40 through 55, we get to eavesdrop on these conversations that take place after judgment. We hear people who fear that God has abandoned them in the midst of a foreign land and the onset of its normality. They have begun to believe that God's promises made to Israel so long ago no longer apply to them. This is Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 8. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, and some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted one. But Zion says in the midst of that, the people say in the midst of these proclamations from their God who continually reaffirms his presence and his power and his engagement with them, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Yahweh replies by saying, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are ever before me. For different reasons, many of us have reached a similar conclusion as the people of Israel. We say God has forgotten us. We say our experience of exile has been too great, whether that be the relationships that we suffer through, the brokenness that happens with divorce and uh, difficulties with finances or job loss or disagreements with parents or failing school or all these different things, we feel as though our, our experience of exile has been too great. The silence in our lives has been deafening where we come back and we say, the Lord has forgotten me. But even still in the midst of that, the last line in this passage resounds, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me or this from an earlier chapter in Isaiah. It says, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Passages like this are all throughout Isaiah 40 through 55. And we see this dialogue between Israel and God, we might even call it an argument between Israel and God where God says, I'm with you, I'm going to comfort you, I'm going to be present with you, and Israel comes back and says, no, you're not, you've abandoned us. Throughout these chapters, God claims time and time again, I'm here, I will rescue you, I will comfort you, I will bring you peace. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
It's no different for us today. We object, we doubt, we question, mainly because some things don't make sense. To take one example from the book of Ecclesiastes, the author who is often referred to as Kohelet or the teacher, he writes, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long lives in their wickedness. On Friday, we witnessed this. And along with Kohelet, we don't understand how or why or for what purpose. So our natural inclination is to object, to doubt, to question. I don't think that Ryan must have read Ecclesiastes too often because he didn't ask many of the same questions that we ask. Instead, he quietly went about the business of living out Paul's well-known line, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We could go around the room and tell stories that would affirm Ryan's passion for Jesus, that would affirm how ridiculous of a human being he was. For those of us that knew him well, we would all agree that Ryan is probably one of the best people that we've ever met. He's strong, talented, loving, selfless, brave, consistent, faithful. But for those of us that knew him well, we would also know that he would be quick to deflect any of that sort of stuff, which kind of made him who he was. I remember a while back, I didn't hear this from him, but I heard this secondhand. Somebody asked Ryan how he dealt with the weight of sickness. And he answered something, this is a rough paraphrase. This is God's story to tell, and whatever he wants to do is fine by me. All over his room at Hopkins while he was there, Megan took scriptures from Isaiah and made these little posters. I don't remember what they said exactly, but it wouldn't be too much of a reach to envision a poster hanging on his wall that said, I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Or I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It's cool to read the Old Testament. It's cooler to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. As you think about that image of being engraved on the palms of God's hands, we're afforded a vision of the true and exact representation of who God is through his son. Traditionally, through art and other pictures, the marks of crucifixion are on Christ's hands. It puts things into context when we begin to look at these passages in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. It isn't just a throwaway sentiment that he has engraved us on the palms of his hands. It's truth and it's life that our Savior 
took on all of our junk and carried it much like Yahweh talks about in the Old Testament and finished it. It's my hope that in the midst of this heaviness, sadness, difficulty, that we move beyond the questions and the doubt. Doug and I from day one have said this is a space where you're allowed to doubt, where you're allowed to ask questions, where you're allowed to wrestle with things. However, in this context, I think that we're doing a disservice to Ryan's legacy by allowing ourselves to ruminate on these circumstances and situations that he did not allow himself to ponder over. Instead, I hope that we can catch a glimpse of Christ that was so evident in the life of our friend and be encouraged that no matter what it is that we're going through, you have been engraved on the palms of his hands. The broken relationship that you're suffering through, the loss of job that you have been feeling as though you're in exile for months and months and months, the uncertainty that you have about to be here or to be there, to take this job or to not take this job, what you're going to do when you graduate school, all of the things that take up residence in the very front space of our minds. I hope that they're tethered by this undeniable truth. The God that we serve, the God that Ryan served, the God that we see pictures of throughout the gospel is the one who made us and who will carry us, who will sustain us, and who will rescue us. And this is the God that has engraved you on the very palms of his hands. I know that this is a difficult time in the life of this really young church. I feel like a jerk thinking about it that way because I know that there's people that are going through a lot worse than I am or that we are but I hope that in the midst of all of this, we learn what it looks like to lament and to lament well, but I also hope that we learn what it looks like to celebrate a life well lived, to become people of service, to become people that live out James chapter one that says true religion is about widows and orphans, to be people that are selfless, and passionate and faithful. Paul often says, follow me as I follow Christ. And throughout the time that I knew Ryan, it was easy to do that. You follow Ryan as Ryan follows Jesus. Be encouraged by that today. And be encouraged even more by the fact that whatever it is that we suffer through here God's in control.